Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. For a few years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we like to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from leaders in the industry. Every week, of course, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. Uh, people really need to know what's happening in the market, in the housing market right now. The market was frozen solid last year. It thawed a bit this year. Then it cooled again. Inventory was rising late into 2023. Really fascinating trends. But it's changing again right now. And so if you need to communicate about the, the market to your clients, to buyers and sellers, uh, go to altoisresearch.com and uh, book a free consult with our team. We can review your local market and how you use market data in your business. All right, let's get to the show today. I've got a great guest today, uh, Dustin Jalbert. J- Dustin leads lumber analysis for fast markets, Rizzi. Uh, wood the wood products team, where he's responsible for the monthly uh, lumber commentary and the North American lumber forecasts. He spent nearly a decade covering the global forest products industry. Lumber and housing are tightly integrated markets, and you know home builders buy a lot of wood. And so today we're going to explore the world of lumber and the economic trends and what we can see and what it tells us about the real estate market in 2024. So I wanted to have Dustin on so we could talk all things wood. Dustin, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here on the, the your podcast. You, you provide a lot of valuable sort of insights and data for the real estate, real estate space. So it's really uh, a lot of fun to sort of jump on today. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Okay. So Let's we're going to talk we're going to talk lumber today lumber markets and and we're going to talk um, you know about forecasting and where the economy and things like that. But first, let tell us about like who you are, how how you got here. Give me a little bit of your journey so that uh, establish your your cred for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, uh, being a, a forest products economist is is a very niche you know sort of. Uh, skill set, right? So a lot of people listening in, you know, especially if they're coming from more of the real estate world, you know, how do you, how do you end up here? You know, like a lot of people like myself, it's, it's sort of by accident, right? I mean, uh, I, I've been covering, uh, you know, the forest product space for about a decade now, but when I started out, you know, coming out of college, it was uh, my master's degree around 2012. The economy for, for uh, someone with a, sort of a, a business economics background was still kind of tough. Uh, so I was looking for work and I remember one of my professors told me, she said, you know, uh, you're from Maine, right? And there's a, a company up the road, it, the company is called Reese, and it was, you know, sort of in later years acquired by Fast Markets, but they focused on the forest product space, both price reporting and economics. And she said, you know, you, you'd be a perfect fit, right? Like you grew up around paper mills and things like that. And I really, you know, I grew up in Maine, but I, I didn't really have a background in paper, but um, you know, little did I know my career would be launched into the forest product space. So, um, so yeah, I mean, my background, I've been covering again for, for about a decade now, 
I actually started on the paper packaging side, pulp, market pulp, uh, which is, you know, just basically sort of ground up wood fiber shipped all over the world. Uh, I worked on those teams for a while. Uh, and I've been covering sort of softwood lumber uh, for our team and the wood product side for about five years now. Uh, so that has been, when I jumped in, like talk about an exciting time to jump into the lumber space and the housing space. So it's been, it's been pretty fun so far. That's fascinating. Okay. So, you know, you got, you're, you're from Maine. Maine has lumber. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you happen to be an economist. So you, you end up there. That's, uh, it makes sense to me actually. So the question though is then, uh, Tell me about the interplay between lumber and housing. I know you follow housing closely, um, and so tell me tell me about that that interplay. What, what why should I care about lumber? What is it telling me about the future? Like, tell, give me some give me some insight there. Yeah, so I mean, I think for for most people, even kind of the the novice observer of the lumber market, right? I think most people recognize it's it's integrally t- tied into residential construction, right? You know, based on our, our data at Fast Markets, you know, we do a lot of forecasting market research in the space on top of kind of the price reporting that we do in the, the forest product space. And, you know, our own estimates are about, you know, for at least for softwood lumber, and it's similar for structural panels like plywood, OSB, you know, around 75 to 80% of demand comes from the residential construction space, right? So as goes the housing market, so goes lumber, structural panels, OSB, all those types of sort of uh, products to frame a house, right? So that's probably not too surprising to the listener. Um, where, where I think, you know, to kind of cut it a layer deeper, um, where people I think are maybe less would be surprised to hear is at least for lumber, uh, softwood lumber, the largest single end use market of that residential construction piece is actually repair and remodeling. It's actually bigger than new home construction, so uh, that is usually a surprising piece of the puzzle for people, right? Because usually, you know, people who follow lumber, they follow housing starts, they follow, you know, housing completions, permits, um, you know, those types of things, which, which that's, a, you know, that's probably about a third of the market when you look at single family and multifamily combined. Uh, but 45, 40 to 45% of demand comes from this repair and remodeling space, which is, you know, obviously, home, you know, major home renovations, but also anything down to you know, kind of your your over the shoulder, what we call over the shoulder or weekend warrior type projects through Home Depot, Lowe's, like that's a that's a sizable piece of the market uh, that drives the demand side, right? Uh, so that's I that's kind of you know how I characterize it, you know, just from a macro sort of big framework. Okay, so right, that makes a lot of sense. The uh, there is a lot of Home Depots and Lowe's in this country, and they are stacked with wood for primarily things like remodel kind of projects. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Okay, so um so what um what do we when we talk about forecasting? I know there are there are times and I read people a lot of times it's it's the the folks who are um you know housing market crash people will will say, "Oh, the lumber market is doing this." And uh, and therefore, housing is going to crash. Do you have like or or like do you do you have forecasting uh, ability? What do you what is the lumber market? What what are key things it could tell us about the future in uh, of housing and real estate? And what is it telling us? Yeah, I mean, so 
I think we have to be careful, right? Because the lumber market, when you look at prices, you know, if people are looking at the, the futures contract price, which is, you know, usually what, you know, kind of the, the common person is looking at if it's not our own kind of fast markets reported uh, sort of random lengths prices. But, you know, I think the thing to remember with lumber, first of all, right, it has its own supply and demand dynamics, right? Certainly the demand side is is very closely tied with residential construction, both new construction and uh, repair and remodeling. But the supply side has different dynamics, right? You can have markets where, you know, sawmill output is is outpacing demand even in a growth market, right? So, you know, sometimes, for example, right now, lumber prices, they are above kind of pre-COVID levels or pre-pandemic levels, uh, but they are fairly suppressed right now. They're off the very, very high pandemic peaks. They're now, uh, you know, for some mills, they're, they're at their break-evens from a cash cost perspective. So, you know, if you look at that right now and you just use that to extrapolate housing starts, you know, you, you might think, well, if housing starts are going to be pointing down for, for next year. And that's not necessarily true for, for, again, for those supply side related reasons. And also there's that whole repair and modeling piece, right? So, you know, I, I think from a forecasting perspective, I think I do think the causation goes from housing to lumber more than lumber to housing. Now, what I will say is we do have some kind of things that you can kind of, uh, you know, some of the indicators we look at internally, for example, uh, our, our random links team, they're, they're the price reporting team that reports the actual market prices for all the, you know, basically all the different dimensions of lumber. So it's sort of the editorial side of our business. They have a great little uh, dealer survey. So, so lumber dealers, mostly, so not necessarily the Home Depots and Lowe's of the world, but more the smaller independent yards. Uh, and that dealer survey provides a lot of good insight on the demand side. You know, you'll, you'll, it, 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 you know, if you think of it as sort of like the HMI from the NAHB, it's very similar in terms of the sentiment indicator on demand, the demand side. And so like right now, you see demand is, uh, is, is, has bounced back a little bit, but you know, sort of demand sentiment is fairly suppressed right now. So those are kind of things that we look at to kind of read through the tea leaves and see that, you know, okay, we're seeing what the housing data is being reported between new construction, repair and remodeling, but here's what it's actually looking like on the demand side from a wood products perspective. So sometimes those don't always connect and it has to do with sort of these, you know, these individual pieces, what's happening in repair and remodeling, what's happening in new construction, you know, single family versus multifamily, all those things. So, okay. So there's a lot of variables that go in there. Um, you said a couple of things that I want to, uh, want to ask about. You said that, uh, lumber prices are actually kind of suppressed right now, uh, low ish. They're higher than pre pandemic, but, but way off the, the, the inflation poster child, uh, of the pandemic boom was lumber, right? As the lumber prices were up. And, and so their lumber's prices are way back down now. Um, are they, uh, so first question there on pricing of prices of lumber, are, is lumber and, and wood products maybe in general, is it, is it uh, deflationary in this moment? Is it, is it, well, so I mean, you know, when you think about it from the construction cost perspective, right? So it is one piece, you know, we, we do, you know, our clients, we work from everyone from the landowner, you know, the timber grower to the sawmill to the wholesaler to we also work with home builders too. And when you, you talk to home builders, that the framing piece of their of the equation, that is a piece of construction cost that has, they've gotten some relief, right? You think about lumber prices, 
Uh, if you look at our random lengths composite price, you know, it went from, let's call it $350 per thousand board feet to peaking out between, you know, $1,500, $1,600 per thousand board feet. And now we're kind of in the $400 to $500 range, right? So, I mean, that's, that's you know, the, the builders are seeing that flow through into their costs, right? And it happens with a lag because uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, a lot of these builders have kind of rolling contracts with their suppliers, um, you know, in some cases. So it can take a quarter or two, but it is a piece of the equation. You know, you think about framing costs, you know, with labor, that's about 20% of residential construction costs, according to the NAHB. Um, so that's a piece of the puzzle. There's deflation uh, in in uh, in construction. But a lot of the other pieces, though, you know, kind of the labor, you know, windows and doors and cabinets and things like that, not seeing that as much from our understanding. But the framing, you are getting some relief if you're a builder. So interesting. So the the more value-added products, the products further down the chain still have the inflationary features. Maybe they have have uh, there's a longer lag time before they come out or or maybe the people there's less of a commodity and more people cost in there? Yeah, I mean, it's some of it. I think it's also just, you think about, Mike, the amount of projects that are still under construction right now, right? You know, you look at, um, you know, there's obviously a lag time between building a single family home to finishing it, right? And it's the same thing with a multifamily. You know, I think, and we saw those cycle times really swell uh, during the pandemic, just given all the supply chain chaos and whatnot. A lot of that has sort of... Uh, you know, those lead times and those cycle times are starting to sort of compress again and normalize. But there's still a lot of construction underway, both in the single family and multifamily side. So there's a lot of projects that are underway, homes that are being finished. So you think about, you know, like you said, the products that kind of can't come towards the end of the cycle, you know, the cabinets, the the doors, uh, you know, electrical equipment in some cases, you know, appliances. Um, you know, I, I don't think that they're as inflationary as they were, you know, sort of 12 to 18 months ago. You know, so maybe the direction now it's more flattish in terms of d- direction up. But, you know, I think builders are not getting the kind of cost relief that obviously they'd like in those other on the, on those other items. That said, you know, you look at home builder margins, at least the public builders, they seem to be doing OK, even with these higher costs of these cost levels. Right. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a, there's a there's a few uh, factors in there that I definitely want to talk about today. You mentioned one that is uh, uh, the sentiment indicator, and that demand is kind of suppressed right now. And does that give you? Do you feel like you have particular insight to business cycle, like recession risk uh, in 2024? Is that can we see that in? Do we see it earlier in things like? You know, that part of the demand, the lumber demand, or do we see it later? You know, I think the thing right now, Mike, I would say lumber has already gone and wood products broadly has already gone through its recession. Uh, you know, so, so you know, typically, you know, the housing market kind of leads the business cycle, right? And and so as, you know, by kind of transit of property, the same goes for, you know, wood products demand. Uh, so we, you know, really, we think actually demand kind of bottomed out for at least lumber, dimensional lumber, probably in Q1 of 2023. And sequentially, we're starting to see a bit of reacceleration. And, and as you can imagine, some of that is from the, the single family space. We've seen single family starts kind of enter a growth path. And that is a big source of demand, you know, especially, you know, there's single family, multifamily, but multifamily, the homes are smaller, 
you know, less wood intensive. Uh, it's really the single family side that drives the new construction side from, from a wood demands perspective outside of repair and remodeling. Um, so th- that, you know, in, in our view, kind of the recession has already happened for wood products. Um, typically, you know, typically that would lead the cycle, right? But this has been such a different business cycle right now, right? You look at what the labor market has done. It's been so resilient. Um, so I'd be hesitant to say that, you know, the, the labor market is, is going to go into recession because lumber has gone into recession uh, in 2024. That said, I mean, just looking at the labor market separately, it does seem like reading the tea leaves, there's some weakness there. I don't think it guarantees a recession. Uh, you know, job growth is slowing. You know, you're seeing sort of uh, continued unemployment claims tick up, uh, you know, sort of aggregate payroll slowing. Um, not disastrous, but, you know, kind of those those more later cycle signals that you'd see in the labor market that could drive a recession. But I do think we have to kind of separate the wood product side and the, the labor market and broader economy just because the nature of the pandemic and the cycles that it drove in the goods and the service side of the economy, it really just has created these rolling recessions in different sectors at different times. So, yeah, um, so that's really interesting. In fact, um, the, the saying that the wood products went through a reset, its recession and through or, or early 2023, January 2023. Does that mean it's it feels like it's a sort of expansionary uh, part of the economy in 2024? I so we actually think so. We're we're probably a little bit on the bullish side compared to the market. Like I said, the sentiment indicators that we collect, and also just looking at some of the public sentiment indicators that the NHB and HMI and things like that are you know are, are pretty are pretty you know depressed right now. But we do think that we you know the the worst is behind us from a wood products perspective, and the reason for that is you know, we're seeing rates come down, right? We're seeing, we've had this huge spike in mortgage rates. We're now getting some rate relief, both, you know, if you follow the 10-year, obviously, but then how that translates over into mortgage rates. Uh, I think we finally are at the peak of this mortgage rate cycle. And what, you know, and, and and, and part of that is because the inflation picture looks better, right? It seems like we've hit peak inflation. There's good signs that inflation is going to normalize without huge damage to the labor market. Um, and so I think what's happening is obviously the market is pricing in the fact that the Fed can kind of become more dovish, focus on focus on its employment mandate and, and kind of stave off a major recession next year. So I think if you have this dynamic where they can cut rates and inflation remains under control, I mean, that sets up a good sort of dynamic for housing generally, right? It, both new and, and resale. Uh, and so we do think, uh, you know, multifamily is going to be a drag next year, just given the amount of floor space coming into the market. But as I mentioned earlier, it, it's really the single family side that drives wood demand in, in new construction, you know, three to four times more wood used in a single family home compared to a multifamily home. So that's, I, you know, that is part of the reason we're bullish. We also do think the repair and remodeling side, we, we don't, we're not super bullish on it next year, but we think repair and remodeling from a volume standpoint has kind of leveled off here uh, and is starting to kind of normalize after this big binge in sort of home uh, improvement activity we saw during the pandemic. So uh, we think it could be accelerating, but at a modest pace next year. Okay. So that's really fascinating because that correlates with uh, our view of the the resale housing market where 
you know, as of we're recording this now, the at the end of November, and and we can see year over year new contracts uh, improving uh, for the first time. Like earlier in the year, it was with thirty percent fewer sales every week, and now it's like five percent more each week. And so, from our view, it's really early in that trend, but and and it doesn't look it's not you know strong, but but it it does it feels like, huh. Like on our view, like uh, home sale transactions could be uh, up in what I look look like they will be up in in 2024, a little expansionary. And it's fascinating that you're seeing the same signals on the lumber side. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, it does feel like the the lead time from the housing when housing goes through its downturn to when whenever the broader business cycle downturn is, it feels like this cycle, potentially it's very, very stretched out right so you could if if it's even you know connected like it normally is right it's been such a weird business cycle because of the nature of the pandemic and this sort of boom and bust of goods to services and vice versa um but you could have a dynamic next year right where housing broadly is an expansion whether you're talking new construction single single family in particular maybe not so much multifamily but single family the resale side of the market is in recovery but maybe we do have like a mild, a very mild recession, right? You know, if the labor market is cooling. Uh, but, you know, for all the reasons you've talked about on, on your kind of the weekly sort of market updates, like if, if we have this sort of resale supply that's coming into the market and enables more transactions uh, and rates come down, it feels like that's the consensus rates are going to come down and that should drive demand higher. And I would imagine that's going to drive resale inventory higher, too. Because every buyer is a seller, or most buyers are sellers, right? So, I mean, it could be a very interesting dynamic next year for sure in housing. That's really, that is a great insight. Uh, I'm happy to hear it because I really, I, I uh, encourage my guests to help us view the future. Like, what framework can we see the future in and what do you use? And so, I really, I, that, I really appreciate that. So, that's the recession indicator uh, side that... Um, we talked a little bit about inflation, but um, uh, what do we know? So, and, and we talked about prices, you know, you, you said, I think you said 300 bucks for whatever the unit is up to 1500 at that peak of that inflation. Uh, and that were, those were, uh, and then, and then down we're about 400 now. Um, and, and um, uh, so, um, where do you see pr- lumber prices in the next year? Do they do they pick up if we're an expansionary space? Yeah, I think so. But you know, I think the thing that we tell our clients is that it's it will go up probably next year. But we have to understand that the COVID paradigm for prices is behind us, right? And I think the thing that you know, we I think a lot of people took from that pandemic initially was that. We had this paradigm shift in housing, right? And 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 it's translating into a, a whole different market view on wood products demand. And really at its most fundamental level, what happened during the pandemic, you had a positive demand shock from, you know, all the reasons, you know, the pivot to the good side of the economy, fiscal stimulus, lower interest rates, people refinancing their homes, all these sort of demand drivers that typically would, would drive housing expansion, both in the the resale, but the new construction side and, and remodeling side. Uh, and then you had negative supply shocks because of all the things that we've heard talked about between, you know, transportation issues, uh, labor, labor shocks, uh, a lot of the sawmills 
actually curtailed production at the outset of the pandemic because they thought there was going to be a massive recession. And obviously the opposite happened, right? We had a huge surge in demand. So that took 12 months to kind of, for for just the supply chain, starting from the the beginning of COVID, of the pandemic, to normalize. So, you know, we, we, the way we characterize it is, look, prices are probably going up maybe five to 10% next year on dimensional lumber. Um, because like, you know, like we talked about, we think demand will be up and the supply side won't be able to keep quite the pace. But I think the level of volatility we saw during the pandemic, it's important to recognize that was sort of like a black swan event, right? Like that was like, you know, a, a one in a hundred year, maybe 50 year kind of event where, um, that kind of volatility is, is not going to be replicated. So we, we, you know, we think the industry, uh, demand is points up. So we do think prices point up and, you know, uh, it, but the, the pricing action is also going to be capped because there is just, there's, there's a lot of sawmill capacity that's underutilized right now. There's a lot of mills curtailing. There's also supply from offshore. Um, so, you know, think about the lumber market. We, most of our supply comes from the U S and you think about the U S market, but then about 25 to 30% comes from Canada. And then another 5% or so comes from uh, the what we call offshore, so basically outside of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so we think there's there's still ample supply that's going to keep a lid on big big bumps in prices going forward. There's a lot of the things I want to get into there, and that was really a terrific view. So on so a little bit of price and inflation and costs, uh, but the but it's notable that the capacity that the market is under capacity under capacity right now which which implies that not too much pressure certainly not the covid supply chain pressure do i have that right yeah or there's 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 more there's uh, excess capacity in the market right now so there's just the, the mill utilization rates are are kind of low right now compared to history um so you know we would and that's when we forecast we look at mill sort of operating rates and utilization to help price forecast and so where we're at right now, it's, you know, probably points up the direction on prices, but it's still going to be kind of a trickle up as opposed to a big, you know, sort of acceleration up. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Tell me a minute about uh, the, the Canadian, the international relationship on, on the market. I was, I read somewhere about, you know, tariffs and, uh, and, and it's funny, like right now, both, Biden and Trump are like big tariff people, like they want to tax like X, you know, and and so what does that mean for lumber? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, you know, the thing that's interesting, Mike, the, you know, I think the U.S. and Canada generally have good relationships, you know, as as neighboring economies and, uh, you know, a lot of sort of inter sort of country trade that happens, but lumber has been this like weird, uh, 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 sort of negative point in that relationship and actually disputes over timber. So the timber that, you know, that's grown in the forest uh, as well as lumber have been going back that, that, that goes far as far back as like the 1800s. Uh, there's like, there were border disputes again in my home state of Maine between the U S and Canada over the, the border of the state of Maine. And a lot of that dispute was over timber rights because, you know, that back then that was a big sort of commodity uh, in terms of, you know, just in terms of the value and sort of a driver of, of the regional economies. Um, really, the, the the dispute you're talking about, the, the softwood lumber dispute between the U.S. and Canada, really, I guess you could say it was formalized in the, the, the early 1980s with 
the U.S. basically accusing the Canadian uh, producers, again, who are a big supplier of, of, of lumber in, in the, the U.S. market. Back then, I think the share was higher. Today, it's, again, U.S. Cons- you know, U.S. lumber consumption. Canada accounts for, for dimensional lumbers, 20, 25 to 30%. I think it was higher back then. Um, but the, the U.S. industry basically accused the Canadian industry of subsidies on their logs. So just uh, not to get too much into the minutia, but the timber as in Canada, a lot of it is on uh, sort of federal lands, crown, what they call crown land. And so the, the uh, sort of the government basically ad- administers sort of the, the system and the pricing system for that timber. So there was an accusation basically that the timber is subsidized. Uh, and so uh, that qualifies it for uh, countervailing duties. Uh, and then also that lumber at times when the market was weak was being dumped into the U.S. market. So basically below sort of competitive fair value. And there's, I'm not a lawyer by training. There's there's very strict, uh, distinct definitions of all this in terms of tr- international trade law. I, I would have to go kind of crack open sort of the textbook on all this. But anyway, those, ac- that the, those accusations led to sort of multiple iterations of a, a lumber agreement between the U.S. and Canada that's happened in three or four different versions of basically a managed trade system where there's either quotas or trigger trigger tariff prices uh, on on prices of uh, on on volumes of Canadian lumber coming into the U.S. market. So there's always been this added tax essentially on Canadian lumber. Right now, uh, we are at a stage where there's actually no outstanding agreement between the two parties. So what is happening is the U.S. Department of Commerce every year uh, is basically assessing a new uh, countervailing and anti-dumping duty rate on Canadian lumber. Right now, it's at a combined rate of the anti-dumping and, and countervailing duties of about 8%. So that is kind of the tax uh, that Canadian producers have to shill out to the Department of Commerce to ship lumber to the U.S. market, which as you can imagine for Canada, the U.S. is by and far the largest market for lumber. So they, they kind of are at the whim of the U.S. industry here. So that is, and I know that's probably maybe going a little bit into the minutiae there, but hopefully that gives some color in terms of where this stands. And and just, I think the last thing I would add, the, the, um, the administrative process for applying duties is different than tariffs. Tariffs there are, and again, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, trade lawyer, so I, you know, there's probably people who are going to listen to this or going to realize I misquote this a bit, but there are conditions where tariffs say the executive branch for emergency or national security purposes can impose them uh, on, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, right? Duties are different in that the process is like a very legal sort of strict process that has to be adhered to and is sort of dealt with by the Department of Commerce. So for example, Joe Biden can't step in and say, we're going to cut lumber duties to zero to sort of try to drive home affordability. That is just not a mechanism that's in place. What has to happen ultimately, there has to be an agreement between the U.S. and Canadian industry. And really, the, all, the only time that really happens is when the market is really under a lot of stress uh, and it kind of drives people to the table uh, to have an agreement uh, to move forward. So again, I know that was a long answer, but hopefully that was helpful. So, Well, that got to exactly my question, which is we have an affordability crisis in the U.S., and in fact, in Canada too. Um, and is there a lever in taxes 
that impacts that. And, and it sounds like there actually isn't a lever, at least not a not an easy lever that we could go um, like, you know, here, let's go cut 8% out of our cost of our home building. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said earlier, right, you know, you do the math, it's, you know, the, the framing side is not a huge piece of construction cost, but you know the labor and the materials for for uh, uh, framing uh, for for construction costs for, for a typical single family home. You know that's around twenty percent of of the construction costs, right? Um, so let's say half of that is labor. Let's say the framing is about ten percent, right? Give or take. I mean, you know that's not nothing if you can take eight percent off. But is it is it ultimately going to drive the affordability of a home given how out of whack we are in the market right now? It's, you know, and everything else that goes into the cost of the home, the labor, the land costs, a lot of that. And, you know, as you know, the land costs, a lot of that is driven by sort of zoning issues and sort of permitting costs. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's talked about a lot about how, you know, if we reduce lumber costs, we, we could drive affordability uh, in housing. But I think it's such a small piece of the puzzle. There's just other bigger fish to fry if we really want to solve this problem, in my opinion. Okay, that's great. That's I now have knowledge there that I won't be spouting off about that that part uh, as a solution. Uh, so that's great. Um, so, but while we're talking about affordability, affordability really is a function of supply and demand. And so, if we talk about one of the things uh, that the uh, most people in the housing data world. Um, uh, assume that part of our affordability crisis in 2023 is still a hangover from the great financial crisis where we underbuilt homes uh, for a decade. I'm of that view that we you know, underbuilt homes for a decade. Uh, and, and so my question to you is, uh, but not everyone is of that view. And, and, and so there, so my question to you is, how do you think about construction over the last decade? And can you see it in the lumber data? And then, uh, and, and you have uh, like insights in the lumber data. And then how do we look at the next few years about home construction? And what can we already see uh, either in the data or in maybe... Um, other trends, maybe it's regulatory or other commercial trends that you see, are they expansionary for home building or are they still being restricted? Let's start with did what you saw in the last you know decade. Yeah, I mean, you know, our team generally, you know, part of our analysis when we do a forecast, you know, we, we do a lot of short and medium term forecasting. So like 12 to 18 months out. So a lot of that is is more kind of underlying sort of short-term trends with interest rates and affordability that, that you know, typically drive sort of housing demand. But over the long term, we look at demographics. You know, we, we look at the census data. The census has, you know, they actually just released their, their latest forecast for demographics, and it was, you know, severely downgraded compared to, I think the last release was in 2017, um, and other kind of data sources. So, you know, when you look at that, there's clearly... Uh, been kind of a pent up demand element to housing, right? Just even, even if you just look at vacancy rates, right? If you look at vacancy rates reported by the census, 
you back out what it would take to have a so, sort of normalized vacancy rate, you know, compared to the very low low levels right now. That alone implies, you know, let's call it a million and a half to two million unit shortage. And that's at a national level, right? As you know, Mike, housing is local. So like, you know, we start digging down to the local level, you can and, and sort of build it up from a bottom up perspective. You could probably get to a different a different conclusion. Right. Um, because, again, housing, you know, in one region is not portable to another region. Right. It's not like a commodity that can kind of shift. And, you know, if, if the transportation costs sort of allow it. Right. Um, so I think in our view, um, there there is a shortage. Right. And I think we could we there's underlying demand over the next couple of years in terms of household formations of maybe, you know, 1.1, 1.2 million household formations. And then, you know, the math on top of that, there's usually 200 to 300,000 units of net loss in the shelter market and in, in, in the, the shelter stock. So it's, you know, homes that are destroyed in natural disasters uh, or dilapidated or sort of removed uh, because of uh, sort of uh, infills, things like that. Um so, you know, that underlying demand alone just annually is, you know, you're talking 1.4 to 1.6 million units. And then there's that 2 million units of shortage, right? So that's, that's you know, there's a need to build to, to meet that demand, right? Um, and then to your, to your next point, like what, are, if I recall, the, the kind of the trends that we're seeing uh, in, in terms of improving affordability and getting more shelter into the market. Yeah. So if we eat up some of that backlog and we build yeah. more houses and is, do, is that likely to happen? Are we going to build more? Like are we going to get ahead of the curve? <laughs> so, so we're probably a little bit bearish on this. Uh, unfortunately, I'm uh, we, structurally speaking, we think even if we can deal with, you know, you know, there's a lot of issues on the zoning side, right? So let's take multifamily. I actually, I think there's reason for optimism there. There's a lot of sort of upzoning measures at the municipal level that has happened uh, to get, you know, duplexes and triplexes and, you know, sort of uh, sort of uh, lot, lot minimums and parking minimums removed. I think there's actually some optimism on the rental side of the market, on the multifamily side, that we're going to gain some momentum in construction and, and sort of improve affordability. Um, so I think, I think those measures, I think are, make me a little bit more optimistic, um, on the single family side, I am, uh, and our team is not really super optimistic. And I think, you know, when you look at it, there's just a speed limit that we can build housing in this country. And, you know, I think a couple things, and you saw this during the pandemic, right? We saw housing starts shoot, you know, up to, I forget where we peaked out one, 1. 1.6, 1.7 million unit uh, units. Uh, in terms of starts and a lot, you know, big jumps in the single family side in particular. But I mean, completions were not able to sort of jump to that rate, right? And a lot of that has to do with all these bottlenecks downstream. And some of that is is in terms of the, the actual um, product and, and sort of commodities that go into housing, right? The building materials, there are capacity constraints to meet that demand and sort of build that out. But I think even more critically is the labor. Like we don't have that kind of surge capacity in terms of skilled labor. Um, and that is a piece, and, and particularly on the single family side, right? Single family is notorious for being extremely unproductive from a labor perspective. You know, it's just very difficult. You know, the framing is, a, you know, framing, roofing, all these are skilled trades, right? And you think about that in the context of some of the biggest building markets, right, you know, that are dependent on immigrant labor. You look, talk about Texas, you talk about California, you know, 40 to 50 percent of, of 
the labor force and construction are our non-residents. We've constrained our sort of the supply of sort of of, of immigrants in this country, uh, and that is going to constrain our ability to build shelter. Right. So I just I think there's optimism on the multifamily side, but I think single family. I think really that the affordability solution is at least the the quick affordability solution. If you want to talk longer term, there's probably other things we can do. But the you know tomorrow solution is to build smaller homes, and we would have to have some sort of miraculous agreement on maybe some sort of immigration policy, work temporary work visas, things like that to get skilled construction trades in this country to ramp up our construction. But I think I, and the last thing I'll say. If, if you look on the single family side, if you look at the pace of completions, not starts, kind of the trend, I think that's the underlying speed limit that we can build single family homes in this country. That's, you know, let's say it's an extra 50,000 to 100,000 units a year on top of the, the million units that we're kind of pacing at right now, give or take. So that's that's the speed limit. All right. That is really insightful. Okay. So. Let's start there. So the pace of completions is like we're doing about a million right now per year. Um, and we could maybe pick it up 10%, but what we, we need to pick it up 50%, right? <laughs> right, right. We need to, you know, to deal with this, this, not only the existing shelter demand, right? So again, let's call it annual demand of 1.4, 1.6 million units. We can debate, we can, we, you know, people debate this all the time, right? What the underlying demand levels, but it's, even if you say 1.3 to 1.6, but if you're building at that rate and then dealing with the pen, that whatever one to two to three million of pent up demand, whatever that number is, like we really should be building 1.6, 1.7, 1.8 to over the next decade to address the affordability issues. And even then, I'm not even sure. I, I'm personally, I'm not. You know, this is not necessarily a fast markets view. This is more my own personal opinion. I'm not even sure then we're going to deal with the affordability issues. Uh, just given the nature, especially on the single family side, like, you know, like think about it. no one wants their home price to go down who's a homeowner, right? Like there's this, there's this natural tension economically and politically given, you know, there's whatever, 120, 130 million households. A lot of them are own their own home. Um, there's a natural political tension there to prevent, you know, the housing market from having whatever, a five, 10% drop in value that is driven by, that's policy driven, Right. So, um, so I, yeah. I agree with you there. And I, th I think that's also true on the immigration side. Like I'm an immigration maximalist um, and that is politically a very rare person to be in this country. And so it's hard to, it's hard to <laughs> sure. see uh, how we are going to solve uh, this capacity problem, this construction capacity problem. And I love that the, the pace of completions is the number to pay attention to uh, and is probably speed limited for us. And like that is because people cite the starts all the time and starts are, you know, lots, empty lots, but really the pace of completions is, is what we have as a, at a, at, uh, the thing to, to, uh, note. And when we get ahead of that, we, we get delays, which is what we got during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. We had, I mean, that was just, you know, and again, granted, I, I do think obviously the, the, the circumstances in the pandemic really kind of turn the dial to 11 or 12 on, on those, on those issues. Right. Uh, but I think you're even seeing it still today. Like, you know, we, we still, there's, there's just a natural sort of speed limit and there's too many bottlenecks, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily on the framing side. It's, you know, it's getting, you know, electricians and plumbers and, 
permitting issues and right now you can't get utility poles like you know so you know to, to get to wire the house like you know if cabinets are still an issue um so we're, we're kind of well through a lot of the supply chain stuff right and we're still having these challenges um you know i think the, the good news is when you have these big surges in demand the supply side does tend to respond i i'm you know kind of a a textbook economics believer right like there is Prices do send signals downstream in the market. It can take time for supply to respond. But I do think, at least on the building material side, you have seen, you know, we see it on the, the wood product side. We've seen capacity expansion. You know, we, we may have too much, at least in the short term, we might have too much capacity. But I think long term will lead to capacity, right? Uh, and I think you're seeing this in other other segments, the, you know, the windows, the cabinets. You know, people saw this demand and said, made some business decisions say, well, we should expand, expand our production at our facilities. Um, that, so I think there's, there's some room for optimism. Maybe I'm a little bit too pessimistic on the, on the, the single family side. I just don't think we've done anything to solve the labor issue. I that, think that, that is still the, the, the binding constraint. Yeah, you know, so. That's a very clear. And I, I am perfectly happy to hear your personal opinions, not just the, uh, the fast market yeah, yeah. opinions <laughs> as well. Like, I, I love it. That's really, really useful to me and my thinking here. Um, so we've been talking about uh, the, the long-term demographic shifts. And I think you mentioned the, about how recently the census forecast about population growth in this country, uh, the, the recent uh, forecasts have come way down, and I think that's because we continue to just restrict immigration, and we don't let people into the country in, anymore. And it, like, so, but so the the forecasts of of population growth in the U.S. has come way down. Um, and does that change the that that you know one and a half, one point six million need? Uh, you know, do does do we just restrict immigration and let the existing people, you know, catch ourselves up. I will say this, Mike, there is so that the, and I admittedly, I would have, I haven't delved super, super deeply into the data, but I think actually the, the census forecast, the source of growth, the, the single source of growth actually in the population is immigration. It's actually where they've become very pessimistic is, is birth rates and death rates of the domestic population, which that's a whole other discussion in terms of the, the you know, just the, 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 you know, obviously a lot of this has been magnified by, by the pandemic, right? You know, we had a huge spike in, in, in mortality rates, uh, you know, across all the, the spectrums, but especially I think the elderly side of the population. Um, but there's just been a lot of longer term. And again, this is, I, again, I'm talking about something that's way outside of my expertise here, but, you know, there, there's just a a lot of kind of health crises that we've had in this country in terms of mental health, you know, suicide rates are up, especially among men um, there, you know, so that's a source of mortality. That's obviously unfortunate. Uh, but also, you know, you've just seen the average age of, you know, the Americans has been dropping for, I think several years now. So, I mean, so that is a part of the, the equation when, and again, I'm not a, you know, so I, you know, I'm not a census statistician, so I, I don't know all the sort of the, the details in terms of how they go through this, um, but I think it's actually, it's, they're quite bearish on the domestic population circumstances. Immigration is slowing, don't get me wrong. So that is a source of a slowdown, but it actually is still growing in, in the outlook. It's still the, the one source of growth because we're having fewer babies and we're dying faster. Yeah, which is obviously super morbid and sad, right? But, but, it, but, it's, but it is, that's, that's sort of part of the dynamics. In terms of the second part of your question about like, 
what the long-term shelter need is, right? In terms of the next decade, right? Maybe we need that, you know, 1.5, 1.6 million, you know, starts to, to kind of deal with the pent-up demand issue or the the under the under construction from the the global financial crisis. Um, we we do think once you get past 2030, the population dynamics do start to look. I don't want to say dire, but they are the the, the picture for the housing market looks much different, right? Um, and so, you know, we probably don't need to be building, you know, 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 million homes. It's probably, you know, closer to, you know, you're probably talking closer to a million to 1.2 million homes, right? There's still a natural level of replacement that needs to happen in the shelter stock, right? For a variety of reasons, right? Uh, you know, homes become, you know, sort of vacant. People move to different geographies, right? So this is, I think this is actually a critical question about what the housing outlook looks over beyond, let's say the next decade, you know, if, if there's this still a mass migration, right, let's say from the Northeast and the Midwest to the South and to the, the mountain mountain States, what, you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever the trend is, then that mitigates some of the, the impact, right? Because again, a house isn't portable from the Midwest to Florida, right? Like you still need to build a home there. So if there's still this longer term sort of migration trends, so that could kind of mitigate the population slowdown to some degree, right? So I mean, the the kind of the population slowdown is sort of baked in to some degree, right? Like we know that's happening. That's all mature economies. You know, the population growth just slows and slows and slows, and the replacement rate drops to a point where you're no longer growing. So I mean, I think that's a safe assumption. But I I think the the to, to next assume that we're just going to have a glut of shelter, you know, like a you know system, you know, like Japan or Italy or you know some of these places where you can get a house super super cheap. I don't know that we actually know the answer to that 100%. I think you can make some some educated guesses, but I think that that migration story and where what the the shelter stock is in those migration locations is a huge question. If if we continue to have what the the, the trends that we're seeing now, um that kind of mitigates some of the, the the diminished population growth, right? Because again, that, that house in the Midwest doesn't uh, meet demand for shelter in the Sun Belt. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's really, that's, that's excellent insight too. So, you know, the thinking about the, the migration means that, uh, you know, we may have our replacement need goes up uh, as uh, even though the population maybe flattens or declines. That's a, that is a, a terrific uh, way to think about it. Um, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, and I want to make sure I get this right. <laughs> the utility poles are in short supply right now. Is that true? Is that like a thing? Yeah. I mean, so a lot of the supply chain stuff that you hear about has been, you know, certainly, for example, you know, my expertise is on the framing and wood product side. I would say building materials more broadly. Um, the framing side, you know, a lot of that has been has been sorted out. Even things like engineered wood products, you heard issues with uh, LVL beams and I-joists and those things that were in short supply have been solved. A lot, even windows and doors and, and you know, you still hear issues with cabinets. But the, the thing that you continue to hear in, uh, you know, surveys that, you know, say like John Burns Real Estate or Zonda or some of these other real estate consulting firms or that, that do these surveys, it's... It's the utility poles to actually connect the house to the grid, right? And so, like, you can't, you know, you obviously, if the house doesn't have power, 
it can't be, you know, sort of moved into, right? And also, you know, I mean, I guess you can have generators on site to do construction, so that's not as much an issue. But it's really like that that's part of this cycle time staying extended for some of these homes. Like they literally can't get them to the client, uh, if the, you know, if it's a custom home, for example, and they've already purchased it and they, or even if it's a spec home and it's been purchased before it's been finished, like that's a, that's an issue. We don't even have enough utility poles. And I think some of this, and this is out of my, my range of knowledge here, but I think some of that probably has to do with just all the demand that's coming from all the electrification initiatives that we're seeing, you know, uh, across the country, right? There's just so much demand for electrical equipment. Uh, and, and so the backlogs there are probably still an issue, right? Um, so some of this boom and, and the, 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 you know, sort of the, what do you call it? The, the clean economy and non not residential construction, you know, battery facilities and, uh, manufacturing facilities. I mean, that's to some extent competing with the residential construction space, um, but yeah, that's one that you can hear it's still an issue right now. So that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Utility poles. Uh, that's great. It actually, it kind of gets to the last topic that I want to make sure get, see if you can uh, help me fill in my, my universe of knowledge in the lumber world. And, and the question is I have is about sustainability. Is the, is our process, what, you know, do, do we have a sustainable process? Is it, is that changing? Does it matter? Tell me about what I should th- know about lumber sustainability for our sticks houses. Yeah, yeah, it's you know it's a good question because the vast majority of homes we build in this country, right, are are, are stick framed, right? At least for single family, multi even multifamily too. You know, the a huge percentage of them are stick framed. Um, you know, look, lumber and timber is a renewable resource, right? So I think um, the industry I think has come a long way in terms of uh, you know you have a lot of you know there's uh, FSC certifications and SFI certifications for, uh, you know, in terms of the, the sourcing of the material that it's done sustain in a sustainable uh, sort of way. So the industry, I think, over the years has uh, made efforts to make sure that uh, the material has a green story. Right. Uh, I think the the kind of interesting twist. But, but you know, there's a, just to kind of complete that thought, there's there's always been concerns about environmental sustainability with clear cutting and disruptions of habitat for, for, you know, sort of different species. Actually, that was a huge issue in the nineties. There was something called the spotted owl crisis in, uh, you, so you, yeah, you, you may know about this in Oregon, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this was a huge issue, uh, in terms of, because a lot of out West in, in, in the U S a lot of the timber is on state and federal lands in terms of where it's sourced, which is different than the South South. It's mostly private, private owners, but but the federal government basically came in and said, look, you can't be cutting this timber because there's this spotted owl that's highly endangered. And it actually had a material impact on the industry. There were lots of mill closures because the logging was severely curtailed. So anyway, sorry, I, I digress. That was just a side thought that I thought, you know, in terms of the sustainability issue, that, that kind of came to mind. But the the other angle right now, right, is that um, where, where I do think lumber and the timber industry is starting to catch on and starting to move aggressively towards is carbon capture, right? You know, growing trees, you are literally sequestering carbon, right? So there's a whole effort to try to build out carbon markets, right? And say, look, like if you're if you have a timber cycle, right? Yes, you're cutting the timber, but if you're replanting and you have you know all that that sort of replanted timber is absorbing carbon. Right. 
you have a net effect there where you actually are sort of canceling out some of the the emissions that the industry is producing from logging and sort of trucking uh, and also just the the loss of the the carbon absorption for those trees that were cut right so I do think there's especially everything is relative right especially when you think about in the context of other building materials like steel concrete um, which have you know probably not as good they don't have as good sort of uh, sort of uh, carbon carbon footprint ratings right and you're even seeing those industries move you know, you talk, hear about green steel with some of the, te- the the production technology in steel to try to minimize the carbon footprint. So I do think that there's this whole uh, green economy, carbon carbon element that is sort of, a, it's a good thing. It's going to drive sort of uh, an initiative to try to make greener, more sustainable building materials. You know, so that, that I think is also an interesting angle to think about. Yeah. Okay. So um, most of the wood products we're using in homes right now are, are they farmed like are they are they planted or are they still it it depends so it depends okay. so they're um the i would say generally speaking in north america the majority are kind of virgin uh, natural forests right so there but in there is a shift in the industry to move to the u.s south where the south uses so a lot of the the, the lumber that we use it's kind of fir or spruce uh, in the Pacific Northwest or from Canada. And that, that material is, it makes great framing material. It's kind of the nor- more Northern colder climates, the trees grow, grow slower, the, the poles are nice and straight. You get nice, tight, um, nice, tight rings on the logs. So that makes for really strong studs and other building, you know, kind of, uh, higher graded lumber. Uh, so you, we use a lot of that, but the industry is moving South because, um, really, uh, the material, it grows faster. The Southern yellow pine grows faster. And in that case, in the South, mo- most of that is more like a row crop. It is a rotational crop that is, that is, uh, not in kind of these, these virgin forests that are, that are kind of natural sort of forests that are being logged. So you could argue that more and more of the industry as it's moving South is kind of moving to this sort of crop rotation sort of, uh, sort of model, right? Which you could, Again, I would, you could probably argue that that was a more sustainable form of, of, of logging. But I think the way that they do it, even out in the Pacific Northwest and in Canada, I mean, it's, it's not like they're, they're, they're clear cutting and not replanting or anything like that. Right. So I think it's just important to kind of keep that in mind, but that's just a, a little bit of a, a detail there. Yeah. So that's good to know. And, and I think that there's probably a lot to be said about the carbon capture, especially if there's, if we're doing a, a replanting of those and, and reforesting areas and, and keeping, keeping them well, like, that's a, that's an excellent uh, view. Okay. Um, look, we powered through an hour of conversation already. It's, it's great. It's exactly what I wanted to understand about lumber and the impact on housing and what you see uh, that maybe the rest of us don't yet see for the world. Like that's, that's exactly what we try to accomplish with the podcast. Um, so, Dustin Jalbert, um, where can the listeners find you? You and I are Twitter friends, but you publish on, you talk on Twitter and uh, where else do we, do we go look? Yeah. So again, on Twitter, you can find me at two by forecaster. So that's my handle. So uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty active user on, on Twitter or X, whatever we're yep. calling it now. Uh, but you can find me there. Um, I'll leave my, my work email too. Uh, if, if folks who are listening want to contact me, you can contact me at, uh, Email me at uh, djalbert at fastmarkets.com. And uh, also generally about our company, Fast Markets, if you just type in Fast Markets, one word into 
you know, your, your search engine, you'll find us pretty quick and learn a little bit about our price reporting business and the market research that we do. So. Excellent. So fast markets, Dustin Jalbert, thank you so much for your time. That was uh, exactly what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, that was my pleasure, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.